Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. And this is the third Monday of the month. So as usual, that means it is time for film, literature, and the New World Order. And as we announced at the, the end of the podcast last month, this month we're going to be covering They Live, the 1988 flick by John Carpenter, starring Rowdy Roddy Piper, who you may or may not remember from your childhood watching WWF back when it was called WWF, if you, like me, grew up in a city that was defined by wrestling. But at any rate, we are going to delve into this, uh, well, surprisingly prescient movie. I don't know if uh, what to how, to how to even describe it, because it is so interesting the way that it's developed um, into more than I think even its creators intended. But in order to help dissect this movie and what's behind it and what the real story of They Live might really be, today we're going to be joined by none other than Guillermo Jimenez of TracesOfReality.com, our old friend Guillermo. How are you doing today, Guillermo? I'm doing just fine, James. Thanks so much for inviting me onto the the film and literature series. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, let's let's just start by talking about this movie. Uh, this was suggested by you. Um, so why don't we uh, why don't we just uh, start talking about why why it is that you wanted to cover this movie in particular? Oh, sure. Okay. Well, you know, it's a fun movie. Uh, first of all, and as you said, you know, I am one of those people that grew up <laughs> watching as a young boy uh, the WWF, as you say, back when it was still called the WWF. And so I remember watching this as a young kid, actually. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm 30, almost, no, wait, am I 32 now? I forget. <laughs> but uh, I, I, You've so already movie, reached that age yeah, where it doesn't even yeah, matter. A little, a little bit. But anyway, so what I was going to say is that, uh, you know, the film came out when I was still very, very young. And I saw it, you know, in the early 90s, the first time around. And of course, I mean, I was still a young kid. I was watching it because Roddy Piper's in it. I didn't really understand it then. And it wasn't until I came back to it much later that uh, things started to connect. And it was like you said, it, it's become one of those movies that over time has come to mean a lot more than even John Carpenter himself perhaps even meant it to mean. And I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about that, actually, as far as uh, what what the the creator of the film's motivations might have been. Uh, and making it what his intent might have been uh, compared to how it's been perceived over time. But as you say, you know, there's, there's really so much about this movie we can talk about. It, it, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, this is the reason I picked it is because it's such a strange sort of uh, piece of piece of art uh, because it, on, you know, on the surface, it's this really cheesy, really corny, uh, 80s, almost B-level type movie as far as the dialogue anyway just really cheesy throwaway one-liners uh throughout which make it great <laughs> uh and but uh, you know that's you know superficially that's what's going on but then there's really you know overt uh, messages uh, uh socially conscious messages throughout the the film that really make it more much more than than that you know your classic uh, 80s b-level movie and so, yeah, I think that 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 dynamic, that dichotomy, I, I suppose, is what attracts me to the film. And of course, you know, these days, uh, the movies become, as you say, a sort of cultural phenomenon. Uh, plenty of pulp, pulp culture references uh, to the movie have been made. Uh, most famously, I suppose, most recently by by Shepard Fairey, um, who was famous for that Obama Hope poster, uh, who's also uh, similarly famous for. That the Obey poster uh, that he created featuring the face of Andre the Giant, another <laughs> WWF figure from the 80s uh, that I think most people now are familiar with, that, 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 that image with the, with the big, bold type Obey right underneath it, uh, that is a, you know, a throwback to, to the film. And so, 
yeah, I think it's 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 very 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 relevant. Um, and uh, we can talk a little bit about you know how it uh, plays into uh, the sort of parallels that we see today with the the modern day structure of geopolitical craziness. <laughs> Craziness being the uh, the operative word there. Well, you're exactly right. Well, I, I it's interesting because I have a vague recollection of perhaps maybe seeing this movie when I was young. I mean, it seems like the kind of movie I probably would have watched with my brothers mm-hmm. at some point, but I don't I don't have a specific memory of watching it. So the first time I really watched it was uh, a few years ago. I watched um I watched it. Uh, <clears throat> for the first time and it was it was i mean it, 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 obviously having watched it after having started the corporate report and everything that yeah. i'm doing i mean it just it it really hits you that it's it it almost seems like it was crafted around the the sort of right. alt media movement right. that's cre- that's been created in the past decade or so on the internet and of course it makes you think that well this information has been around for a while so i mean is it out there in the ether who's you know, who's been propagating this before. But then when you actually start to look into John Carpenter and his expressed intentions around this, I mean, he doesn't give a lot of interviews and he doesn't talk a lot about his work. Mm -hmm. So it's somewhat difficult to to get a good handle on. But everything that I've read has basically um, said that, that John pretty much saw the uh, the aliens as representative of Republicans, right? And I think I right. think that was most <laughs> obviously um, in that scene where he's uh, in the uh, the supermarket or wherever he is the the yeah. grocery store where there's the politician on the screen giving the speech and he says something like a uh, and it's a uh, what does he say yeah, it's, a new it's figures, da- it's new morning or like, a new day yeah oh that's right that's and, right and it was like, I mean clearly a Reagan reference yeah. so yeah so um I- exactly I mean I think. It, it can definitely be read that way, and of course, I mean the the real overriding feel of the the movie in the first um, opening act is is definitely the economic crisis. Mm. The uh, the fourteen banks went under in a week, and uh, he's looking for work. He, he has to live in this homeless encampment. They're talking about you know I believe in America that kind of thing. So it's yeah. it's definitely got that eighties economic crisis kind of undertone to it, and I can see definitely how it could have come out of that. But as you say, I mean, there's so many things about this movie that are so prescient about about things that we cover in the alt yeah. media today. And I was just making a <laughs> list of things um, uh, as I was going through the movie uh, in preparation for this conversation. Uh, the economic crisis, which obviously, I mean, we're still we're still dealing with uh, various right. aspects of that, and and the the the, the disparity between the the ultra rich and the ultra poor. Um, subliminals delivered through television and, uh, and mass media, uh, mm. el- electronic mind control, um, alien species ruling over humanity, <laughs> uh, spy drones, uh, humans bribed to join the alien system, um, geoengineering, um, infighting amongst those who are awake uh, over how, how to act about it. All of these things are issues that have been covered in one way or another by the alt media in recent years. So again, I just thought it was so completely prescient, uh, this movie. And it really does make you wonder, I mean, I, I, perhaps it wasn't even intentional, but, uh, but uh, there's clearly something in the ether or something out there that people recognize about this, this theme. I mean, this theme transcends, I think, just uh, the, the specifics of how it was created. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, this movie, as you said, you know, it just, as you described rather, it really does have everything. And, you know, I, before we get into um, perhaps how it relates to today's world, I did want to go back and, and touch on a little bit more uh, what you brought up, which is uh, the lead character in the film played by by Roddy Piper, who is nameless in the movie. He's never named, doesn't provide his name. It's only until the credits that he's listed as Nada, 
which means nothing. <laughs> uh, but that that you know, we you and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, and so that that actually comes from the short story that the 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 film is based on. The lead character is George Nada. We can talk about the short story a little bit later, but but anyway, so that that's I think that in itself is is something that this is a, a nameless drifter going about uh, traveling to Los Angeles, as you said. He's coming from a place where all the banks have closed down, and he's looking for work uh, in this economic crisis. And uh, you know he can't find work, and he stumbles upon this this massive conspiracy, and and it's up to him to to solve everything. But in the beginning of the movie. Uh, yeah, he's, he's you know he, he delivers that line where you know I still believe in America and I'm just going to work hard and, and wait for my opportunity. So he's like very much that that sort of you know Johnny American, you know Joe Schmo, anybody, uh, any town USA sort of thing. And so that's an interesting sort of sort of thing that happens there at the beginning of the movie. But it, and then it hits you right away. I mean, like five minutes into the film, you're you're introduced to the street preacher, and already you're hearing about how. You know, where the world is being run by an elite who treat us like cattle, we're slaves to the system. And it's just over the top, in your face, from from the go, uh, from beginning to end, practically. And so it's that so that's that's it's a very powerful thing about the film. But also something you mentioned about how how it it's it it speaks so well to the sort of things that we talk about regularly. But what I found so curious about this was just just when the film came out back in 1988 and as we said earlier this is you know John Carpenter has has done a couple of interviews on the subject and as you said he's he said basically that it's it was a reaction to uh the Reagan years uh this is, 88 is the year uh the last year of Reagan's second term in office uh when the film was being made uh, you know, George H.W. Bush has just, uh, you know, is in, is in the process of securing the nomination en route to succeeding Reagan. So it's it's in that sort of culture and that sort of society that this movie is being being made and being uh, delivered. Uh, but what I find so curious is that, as you said, you know, has got so much of what the stuff that we talk about today about the power global elite, and yet it was made in the '80s, back when this stuff really wasn't talked about nearly at the level that it's talked about today. I mean, the, the ideas of the New World Order, for example, um, you know, those have been around uh, for a while, for, for, for probably 100 years, if not more, but uh, really picked up steam in this sort of context, within the context of a sort of uh, global conspiracy uh, in the 1970s. But it was really limited to, to books and small circulation magazines and newsletters. So uh, 88 is also uh, still three years before uh, George H.W. Bush delivered his now infamous New World Order speech before Congress. So we're talking about a very, very small number of people who would have been familiar with this idea uh, relative to today, uh, certainly, but even relative to even you know just before, just after 9-11 even. So we have this film, again, that's so cheesy, so corny, but a brilliant film that uh, an established director coming out of Hollywood, uh, essentially putting forth this the, the New World Order conspiracy theory in everything but name, sort of speaking in code in a way. At least that's you know how it, how I would you know see it or read it. And, and yet at the time when it came out, only a tiny tiny fraction of the audience would have made that connection, right? If any, 
And so that's what I find so so curious about about a film like this because in today's world, a film like this, you know, they live just it probably wouldn't work. <laughs> the the parallels are probably too obvious. The message is maybe too in your face. It would it's it's almost like beating people over the head with things that they they generally know or at least have heard before. Uh, today's audience probably requires a little something more subtle. But for 1988, you know, the audiences that came to see the film uh, and that watched it through the 90s and maybe er even the early 2000s, the film was perfect for them. You know, actually, yeah. I mean, to be honest, you you started by saying it's a fun movie, and I I think it absolutely is a fun movie. It holds up today as just an extremely watchable 90 minutes. And it's an action movie if you just want it to be an action (laughs) movie, but it obviously has all of these incredible undertones. And I think the, uh, The Glasses is just the absolute perfect visual metaphor it is Mm. absolutely just brilliantly done and uh it's such a powerful scene when he puts on the glasses and starts seeing the world um it's so so brilliantly uh done and so i i like the way it's it's so uh it's just so stark it's i mean it's just black lettering on white backgrounds obey Mm -hmm. and consume and all of this and it's just such a, a a contrast to all of the you know the bright vivid multicolor advertisements and things that we see but underneath it's all the same message and it's all very basic and i just thought that was i mean it's just such a a brilliant brilliant um way of visualizing that and i suppose we could talk about how you know how prescient this is for 1988 but then as you mentioned before i mean we could go back to the 1963 short story that it's based on in which uh george nada as you say uh wakes up from a trance after being hypnotized he he is, wakes up all the way as he writes i, lo- I love that it's a, such a yeah. nice little opening and uh and so he starts seeing what is described in that story as the fascinators who are basically some type of reptile type beings and uh it again that's interesting because of course now reptilians with, exactly right? <laughs> well I, I mean now that's that's an idea if you wrote that story today you'd be like oh it's a david ike kind of thing right but exactly. i don't know where I, I really don't know the origins of the reptilian kind of idea i'm Perhaps it preceded Ike, but clearly he's the the biggest progenitor of it. So, again, this being written 50 years ago, I mean, it seems to me in both cases, It, I mean, I, I'm willing to take John Carpenter and the author of uh, the eight, 8 O'Clock in the Morning, the story this is based on, I'm, I'm willing to take their word at it that... That, you know, it was based on Republicans or it was about, you know, some, it was just a silly sci-fi story. But clearly mm-hmm. it touches on themes that are very applicable. And I, I think... Again, this is the sense that everyone has, everyone has, that there is something underlying the system that we see that, that's going on. This isn't just random chance or just, you know, you know people who work hard get, 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 get ahead in the system. There's yeah. clearly some sort of structure underneath. And I think that's a pretty universal theme that they've tapped into. And, and as, as I say, just in a visual sense, just brilliantly done in this movie. I think you're absolutely right. The word that came to mind as you were talking about this was universal in the sense that 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 sort of theme that there's more than what than meets the eye. There's something beneath the surface. That's a very very universal uh, theme and concept throughout literature, throughout art, and things like this. And so uh, I think that's very very true. And to go back to what you said about the Retilians, I mean that has yeah that that connection I guess has to be made. We're almost uh, obliged to make it because I mean I would it correlates so perfectly with David Ike's shtick about the the shape shifting reptilians that I would I would be surprised 
if if Ike wasn't in, if, if he wasn't directly influenced by the film or the short story in some way because it's just it's too perfect. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. I've but, heard uh, him make reference to V before, but I've never I, really I've okay, never heard that him makes make specific yeah. reference to V. Well, like. when did when did V came, come out? Because that that's that the original uh, V is also what is that was that from the 80s or yeah 70s? yeah i i well i remember the television series in the 80s i don't know the kind of origins of that yeah i don't know if that's based on a, on a novel or of yeah. some kind or yeah but i, yeah, I have to go back and revisit that maybe that's <laughs> enough future flnw but yeah no um yeah so I, that idea again it seems yeah there seems to be something more Kind of but, a, the, the, but, the, but the short story, the, one of the things that really stuck out to me, uh, that was a phrase in the, that short story, and it, do, and it relates to the film, absolutely. Again, going back to that character of, of that loner, him against the world, just doing this on his own, you know, and there's a, there's a line in the short story that's repeated uh, twice, and it's, it's what can one man do or what could one man do? And as as George Nada is going about this this crazy day of his, where he's woke, waking up, where he's woken up or waking waking up, <laughs> has awakened. Uh, and that's another thing we can talk about. Just that that word alone, mm, and and then what that means. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in today's sort of culture. Yeah. Um. But but so he's awake and he's having this crazy day. Uh, he gets a phone call where he's told he's going to die the next day at eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, but but yeah, he's at a hypnotist or something, and then he he wakes up all the way, and now he can see for the first time uh, what there really is, and he sees these reptilian looking aliens uh, instead of uh, you know sees you know the human form sort of disappears, and he sees them for what they are. And um, but anyway, so he's he's going about this by himself, and he keeps repeating to himself, you know, well, yeah, so I see this, but but really, what can I do? And he notices that the more he starts to realize what's really happening. The more nervous uh, the aliens start to get, uh, the more nervous these fascinators start to get, uh, and he keep, but he keeps wondering, you know, what? But this can't be happening, right? I can't be having this much of an effect. I'm just one person. What? What can one man do? Uh, but by the end of it, he realizes that yes, uh, I can do something. And, he, and I think towards the end of the short short story, it's very very short, by the way, for those of you who uh, have not uh, checked it out. It's it's literally five pages long. You can get through it in about 10, 15 minutes. But uh, by the end of the story, uh, he has realized that all it takes uh, for him to to wake everyone up is to shatter the illusion. Is to I think one line. I think I wrote this down actually. It's a good line. Oh, so you see, yeah, the, the the power of the illusion was it has to it has to believe it can master me to do it. The slightest hint of fear on its part and the power to hypnotize is lost. And so once he realizes that all he has to do is, is shake these people into thinking that, you know, we're on to you. I, I, I know your game here. I can see you for what you are. Uh, the illusion fades. Everyone wakes up and it leads to some kind of world war or something in the book. And <laughs> so but the good guys win is, is the moral of that story. Yeah, I, that, that story is so short that it uh, <laughs> just glosses over entire... Right, you know, the ward yeah. is, like, is like one line. It's like yeah, literally exactly. one sentence. <laughs> but uh, interestingly enough, in that story, he ends up dying at 8 o'clock in the morning, exactly mm. as he was told to um, in that story, which has some interesting implications for the story, because then, I mean, it means that the, there really remains that influence, and mm. uh, people uh, remain susceptible, I guess, to it in that world. So, and, and of course, similarly in the movie, I mean, Nada ends up dying in the movie as well, in sacrificing yeah, yeah. himself to sort of save humanity, again, by disrupting a television 
um, broadcast because again TV is the the method through which this this deception is being woven right. or at least one of the, mass, the main yeah. mass mm. media mind control again it's, so it's yeah <laughs> and and yeah there. and and explicitly there's the, uh, the 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 people who break in on the signal um, that are that are uh, based in this homeless camp where we're not as staying and the the person who's delivering that message is saying specifically it's it's some sort of um, sig- something embedded in the in the signal itself the television signal and it's twenty four seven even if you have the television turned off it's mm, still mm-hmm. um, coming through and hey doesn't that sound familiar it, it sounds like my smartphone exactly <laughs> no I mean it is I mean it's just so incredible the way that uh, again it relates so much to what we talk about um, but yes I mean clearly clearly the message of this is that it is a type of hypnosis that we're under that it's it, like we're almost it, it's almost like a sleep-like consciousness i think the, the, the person says on the broadcast yeah. and again i mean that's exactly the sort of consciousness that we're constantly confronting when we're trying to tell information about what's really happening in the world which is why i mean this is such a perfect metaphor and and i think I don't know, but I assume that the reason that the alt media in this day and age uses the term awake and uses it in that way is probably because of movies like this. I think this movie helped give a language to the movement that then arose, which is why it's when we look back at it now, it looks so much like what we think the alt media looks like. Yeah, exactly. And it, again, that the language I think is key. It does. We use a lot of the same language uh, it, when when talking about what it is that we do and and what you know what's displayed in the film. And you know, of course, you have uh, yeah that group that Nada joins uh, very early on. He comes. He stumbles upon this church uh, where there people are gathering. Where there's there's just people that that do see who are awake, but he doesn't quite know what they're doing. They look kind of fishy, and he goes to investigate. Uh, but there's a there's a there's a, a scene in the film where he walks in and on the wall in, in huge letters I think it's graffiti or chalk or something it's written they live we sleep and I, that that might be the first reference to the sleep awake sort of thing but uh, it's very early in the film but then it, yeah it sort of plays on that throughout you know he you know we that you hear all throughout the film you know we need to wake people up we need to show them what it is. That's really going on, and and they refer to themselves as revolutionaries, and they talk about how you know they need to take down this 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 uh, you know global elite conspiracy. It's just it's just again, it, you know, the parallels are so, are so striking. But um, what was it? Where was I going with that? I wanted to mention something about that the the language, but. Uh, I forgot exactly what I was going to say, but I'll come back to that. Well, let's let's pick up there on the idea of these revolutionaries and and sort of the way that they're they're positioned in this story because I think uh, there's obvious uh, analogies. I, I don't know how explicit they are, but obviously this this type of story goes all the way back to Plato, uh, right? The the allegory of the cave. So mm-hmm. watching the shadows on the wall, you think the shadows are reality, but yeah. then someone is able to break their chains and get up outside and see the sun and see the real world and realize that people are just watching shadows on a wall. So what happens in the cave allegory, um, the person returns to the cave and Socrates says to Glaucon, wouldn't he remember his first home, what passed for wisdom there and his fellow prisoners and consider himself happy and them pitiable? And wouldn't he disdain whatever honors, praises and prizes were awarded there to the ones who guessed best which shadows followed which? 
Moreover, when, were he to return there, wouldn't he be rather bad at their game, no longer being accustomed to the darkness? Wouldn't it be said of him that he went up and came back with his eyes corrupted, and that it's not even worth trying to go up? And if they were somehow able to get their hands on and kill the man who attempts to release and lead them up, wouldn't they kill him? Um, which is, again, I mean, <laughs> I guess we could talk about how prescient um, uh, Plato yeah. was or uh, in all of this. But... Um, but uh, uh, that that really is kind of one of the fundamental things that they're dealing with the people who are awake in this movie because they're 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 wondering well what how how can we affect change what can we do and then of course there's the people you know it's it's time for us to spill some blood yay yeah. and then there's the other <laughs> right. one no no we've got to bide our time and we've got to wake right. people it's up it's not time yet yeah exactly. exactly i think and i think it's exactly what he says now they might that might be the line where yeah there's a there's a scene where they're sort of arguing about you know, should we act now? And then he says, I think he says, no, we need to wake people up first. And so, yeah, there's, it, again, there's just so much, but there's one thing that, I, I mean, you know, what you were talking about with Plato, I mean, I just, that just speaks to the, to how universal, again, these themes are. Uh, but it, you know, what's also uh, really interesting about the film is how these things are interspliced with, you know, m- counter uh, consumerism messages and things like this uh, more for a, a, a modern uh, audience. And uh, one of the scenes that really struck me as I was watching this film again uh, recently is it, when it, when it's, when it's cutting between uh, you know, what, what Nada can actually see uh, for the world as, as it is, as it really is uh, and what he's at, what, you know, what everyone else is looking at. And there's, there's scenes like there's commercials for, uh, you know, press on nails or something and some sort of fashion ad. And there's a woman talking about how, you know, when she, oh, there's an interview of a woman talking about how much she loves watching soap operas and television because she can escape and, and feel important for a short time and feel loved. And that that's a word that, that you know, speaking of language that really struck me also in watching it is, you know, the the, the love that that one can feel, I suppose, uh, from from fiction and from escaping from your life for a short time, and on that note, um, as far as that escape, um, there's also that dynamic between Nada and 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 Frank, his best buddy, right? <laughs> the guy he befriends at the construction site, and uh, you know, be, when when Nada first discovers, uh, you know, what's really going on, uh, he of course wants to you know tell others and share it with as many people as he can, and his friend, you know, his best buddy. Uh, doesn't want to hear it, and he he says something to the effect of, you know, hey, I don't want to, I don't want to know about that, man. I got a wife and kids. You know, I got a wife and kids. You keep your own problems. I don't want to hear about it. And again, that's that's again. So the parallels are there between, you know, what what someone who's listening to this perhaps uh, might have experienced when talking to friends and family about uh, things they were learning about or reading about or studying. And you might you, you probably often got reactions like that from friends and family saying, you know, I've got my own problems. I've got a mortgage to pay and kids to feed and raise. I really don't want to hear it. And, you know, we, I think we have actually talked about this before. Uh, the the symbolism uh, behind that that fight scene right between Frank and Nada, uh, where where Nada you know physically forces Frank to see you know how, how aggressive uh, I guess one sh- can be or should be with that message he li- they literally beat the shit out of each other for about five minutes and then he forces him to put on the glasses and he finally is like oh 
you were right all along. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, again, just such, it's the perfect metaphor for the, the struggle that I think we've all faced in trying to get other people to see the information. And I, I wrote that down as well. Um, uh, Nada says to Frank, uh, you ain't, uh, I, I got something to show you. And he says, you ain't yeah. showing me anything. I got a wife and kids, <laughs> so just leave me alone, which right. is exactly right. I mean, I've got a wife and kids, you know, I've, I, I, I'm too invested in the system. I don't want to know what you know. And then uh, later on in the fight, just before the fight scene, um, Nada says, I'm trying to save you and your family's life. And Frank says, you yeah. couldn't even save your own. <laughs> so, uh, so again, I, I, exactly the type of scene that's I'm sure we've all played out metaphorically, hopefully. <laughs> I would hope not too many people have been involved in a, see, a fight scene like that. Um, the fight Epic scene, fight scene, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The fight scene quite famous in, in, in film history, I would say, for being, um, well, probably one of the longest uh, single fight scenes in, yeah, in any action Yeah, I think uh, it's been... Uh, parodied on South Park, I think. Uh, the, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, Jimmy and I don't Timmy, think I saw that. I think, no, they. Uh, I think they, 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 the creators. I think I heard one time that they, they, they were really proud of the fact that they were able to the like blow by blow, like they copied the entire scene. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, but yeah, but uh, so uh, clearly the fight to put the glasses on someone else is one of the, the fundamental struggles that uh, Nada has to face in this. And then, of course, it's the question, well, how do we do this to society at large? And they, they decide to target the, the TV studio. But yeah. um, but if the glasses then are a metaphor, what are they a metaphor for? I mean, at w one point he says, you know, we have to... We have to get uh, these glasses to to everyone or something something along those lines. No, no, uh, we can't be the only ones who see. Uh, we have to find who made who made these glasses or something like that. Oh, I, and, didn't, I don't catch that one. What, we, I, what I found interesting about the glasses, just real quick on that yeah, same yeah. note about the glasses, is uh, something else he said that I found uh, kind of kind of worth noting is. Uh, he mentions to Frank, you know, oh, well, you know, don't wear this for too long, man. He said, you know, after a while, it'll feel like a like a screwdriver in your head or something like like a knife being uh, drilled into your head. I, I forget the exact line, but basically, you know, it, it'll be too painful if all you do is look through these glasses all the time. So take them off every now and then. So we can, you know, also sort of metaphorical. That's right. But then when they go to the uh, to the, the, the whatever that place where they're they're all the uh, people who are awake are 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 there the revolutionaries they get some kind of contacts or something that <laughs> work better so yeah <laughs> i don't know i don't know if that's an extended <laughs> metaphor or if uh, maybe it just breaks down there but but if the glasses are a metaphor what are they a metaphor for well clearly i mean the glasses are traces of reality.com the the glasses are corporatereport.com the glasses are all these you know people out there scattered around the world who are trying to show this to other people and have the uh the, the the technology to do it this the mm. specs to to show people what the world for what it really is and so many people will refuse to take a look um again just i mean it's so completely f germane to what we're doing that it's uh it's pretty amazing and i guess i mean we could continue talking about so, sort of the analogies of it but let's mm -hmm. let's think about how this actually impacted um society as i say i think that clearly the people who are involved in this in the alt media and the people who were starting it were big fans of this movie, which is, I think, yeah. why some of this these ideas and, and images and, and language has worked its way into the alt media. I mean, explicitly, Alex Jones is a huge fan, and uh, he uh, did an interview with Roddy Piper not uh, not so long ago for the 25th anniversary of They Live. So I'll put that in the show notes for people who are interested to hear Roddy Piper talking about the movie. Um, but, uh, in terms of the society at large, what was the effect of this movie? I, I, I have no idea. I'm just looking at IMDb. Apparently the uh, budget <laughs> for the movie was about $4 million and it ended up grossing about 13 million. 
um, wow. in the U.S. anyway. So I, I, a moderate success, right? I mean, it, it, was that um, not, well, those are those numbers up to date or? Yeah, I it, believe yeah. so. Like but over it, time, it, it says opening yeah. weekend with four point eight million, which is oh, pretty wow. impressive on one thousand four hundred sixty three screens. Well, yeah. I I saw, I saw a clip of uh, Keith David, the uh, the man who plays Frank in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, at a uh, an event with Roddy Piper, and and they were talking about this, and and Keith said something to the effect of. Um, for two weeks, it was the number one movie in in the nation, and then it just suddenly disappeared from theaters. Um, <laughs> and and he said, "Well, it must have pissed someone off." Yeah, and I don't I don't know the truth of that. I don't know if it was the number one. Four point eight million uh, back in nineteen eighty eight sounds like it probably was the number one movie uh, for opening weekend. Um, but I, I really don't know. Um, but that yeah, I mean that's certainly for interesting. Inflation. Yeah, it sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, add a few zeros. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So I I don't know, but I mean that that wouldn't particularly surprised me if that was the case. No, I mean, Piper was a big name in the 80s, yeah. after all. He's a big star in the WWF scene. Um, you know, this is a time when other uh, wrestlers of that time were making movies uh, under the giant, making The Princess Bride. You have Hulk Hogan making all kinds of movies. And so, I guess I'm not... I, initially, when you said the numbers, I was surprised. But I guess, uh, upon further reflection, uh, I'm not that surprised. Although, that is curious to know that I did not know that, that uh, the film all of a sudden just up and disappeared from theaters <laughs> yeah well i i'll look i'll try to see if i can dig up anything more on that but uh that again it wouldn't really surprise me um mm-hmm. but that's just our conspiratorial thinking right <laughs> sure <laughs> we've got one that can see <laughs> all right well again i mean just a brilliant film i hope people really did enjoy watching this i mean even just as a movie i think it's just fun but uh, obviously it has some deeper implications any any other parts that you wanted to uh, dissect here Oh man, there's really so much. There's there's so many different lines that that you know we can talk about as 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 metaphors. Um, I guess just one real quick thing, um, just to throw it out because I I bothered to write it down. <laughs> when uh, there's a scene where where uh, Piper's character uh, looks over at the at the newsstand, um, and that's when you see most of these messages. The you know the as you said the the, uh, the black and white really stark and big bold obey and consume. But there's there's a couple of more. Uh, subtle messages that you almost have to pause, which I did. You almost have to pa- pause the movie to to read them, and some of them I found very, very, uh, I guess, striking. Is 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 the word? It's just um, when he's looking at those those magazines on the newsstands. You know, you see the 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 ones that you've seen throughout the movie already: consume and obey, and marry and reproduce, and things like this. But you also see a couple that you don't see uh, too often in the movie, and it's uh, honor apathy is one that really struck me, and Doubt Humanity is another one. And you only see those two, that I can remember anyway, that I, would, that I noticed, you only see those two uh, when looking at that newsstand or looking at a, a news magazine or things like that. You see Doubt Humanity and Honor Apathy. And it just, again, you make that connection between uh, mass media and its, its, its real function uh, in society. Um, and that's some, that's a lot of what um, the film talks about, I suppose, in that in that sort of uh, message that it delivers. But um, yeah, no, I guess there's, that's just the one thing that, that that I wanted to point out from the right. movie. But I guess on the, on a yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, honor apathy. I think that clearly relates to that message that the man in the interrupted TV broadcast is talking about how they mm-hmm. they want you to to not care or something along those lines. Um, yeah. The other one, what was that again? Doubt humanity. Doubt humanity. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. 
So uh, obey your reptilian overlords and doubt the people <laughs> around you. Well, uh, again, and of course, it's always about the infighting and fighting with each other when, of course, mm. the, hey, you know, there's this actual alien species ruling over us. Maybe we should concentrate on them before we start fighting with each other, um, which I think, again, has a lot of uh, uh, is very apt for our current situation. Well, let's also I think we should probably address, I mean, the 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 way that the, the sort of the structure of this system of oppression works in the film, mm-hmm. which interestingly is geared towards the geoengineering of the planet to make it more hospitable for the aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I believe that was what they're implying because of the uh, the rising chlorofluorocarbons and whatever, the uh, sort of <laughs> 80s environmental concerns that they threw yeah. in there as, as sort of like, oh, they're, they're engineering the planet, um, which was interesting. And they treat the uh, the earth basically as as we treat a third world country um, just to exploit it for its resources and mm. you know move on um, so obviously very interesting from that analogy but also interesting because of the way that it works where you have these cooperative human beings who know that these are you know this this alien species that's just basically using them but hey they get to live the good life um, which again I think speaks very powerfully to the uh, the type of um, the type of situation we're in, because I think that the, the, um, the, I suppose we have the enemy, quote unquote, of the fellow human beings who just won't look at the glasses or won't put on the glasses. But more importantly, the enemy are, are the people who, who will cooperate with the system knowing full well what it is simply because they get some, some benefit out of it. And I think that's yeah. kind of the image of the, uh, the super elite versus the, uh, the, the so-called elite, the, uh, the, the, just the people who make, you know, a few million dollars a year because they, <laughs> right. they are good toadies to power and they, they will serve the people in power. And, uh, yeah. again, I think that's really instructive about the situation we're in. Yeah, indeed. No, that is the pecking order uh, in the film and both in the, in the real world in a way. Uh, one quick thing about that line, though, about the third world, I, I, that's actually one that I wrote down because I, I, it, it plays right into at least the the stated purpose by by John Carpenter of the movie as sort of anti-Reagan, anti-capitalist type of message. Uh, there is that line by one of the characters who I don't remember his name. I think is I think it might have been Gilbert, that that lead revolutionary before Piper joins. Um, he says he calls the aliens. Uh, he says they're free enterprisers. Earth is just another developing planet. They're third world. So, yeah, I thought that line was kind of it, it, again. It just plays right into uh, that sort of you know uh, message, and which is I thought also was interesting because compared to other alien invasion type narratives, especially the ones that come from like the you know, 50s, 60s on, on up to now, most of the time, at least from the, from the sort of literary criticism that I've read about these, the little, the little bit that's out there, uh, most of these have been interpreted as sort of rep- the, the aliens are supposed to represent, you know, the, the communists are supposed to represent, you know, the Red Scare. And, right, right, you know, right. they're, they're all like the, Bo- they're like the Borg. They yeah. all have this co- collective hive mind. But in this movie, at least again, according to Carpenter, it's the opposite. The, the aliens are the capitalists. The aliens right. are the free enterprisers, which I thought was an interesting juxtaposition there. So Yeah, no, it neat. is an inversion of the kind of typical idea of the invasion. I, again, I think this works, this movie works brilliantly on a lot of um, narrative levels. And as I say, the visual metaphor of the glasses is just perfect just absolutely perfect so i think it does extremely well for what it intended to do and uh well i think john carpenter yeah, should it's a be funny proud. movie yeah yeah and it's a, it's a funny movie i was gonna say you know all it's just the like i said at the beginning just the just the one-liner after hilarious one-liner so if you're into uh those sorts of movies uh i came here from to the chew 80s. bubble gum and kick ass <laughs> And I'm all out of bubble gum. <laughs> love it. I love it, man. Such a, yeah. Can you even imagine writing that line? Yeah. 
Anyway, yeah, no, I, I, exactly. So for anyone who has listened to our conversation without having watched the movie, although I can't imagine why you would have, um, <laughs> I, absolutely go out and watch it. It is just a fun movie, but also, I, I don't know. I mean, do you think this might be possibly a tool for getting people to see the alt media and sort of, you know, broaching the conversation with people who might not be interested in this? Uh, perhaps. As I said, you know, at the beginning, I think the movie did does did well for the audience that perhaps wasn't already familiar with this uh, before the sort of, you know, uh, information age, internet age that we live in now, where this information is pretty, pretty widely accessible. Um, I think the movie is very, very, I mean, obviously, as you said, it's very over the top, very overt uh, in its message. But, I mean, at the same, at the same time, uh, it is very slick. As I said, it, it does, it does, I do enjoy the way, uh, Visually, it's it's presented the way the the the, the images are interspliced, uh, the editing in, in the film rather quickly between again those those there's one scene where it's you know he's looking at you know that the horrible economic situation that he's in and the very next scene this is prior to the glasses the very next scene is that the the fashion model and you know the, the press on nails commercial so it's it's it it there is. You know, this, despite how obvious it is, also at, at times there is subtlety uh, in the movie as well, and so I think it plays to both audiences. I think it it, could, it can potentially uh, get someone who is not already in tune with these ideas to to watch a fun movie uh, and, and see this and think, huh. That's interesting. Why? Why does that? Why did? Why did? Why did those TVs say obey? Why? Did, why? Why does it say? You know, doubt humanity on that newspaper. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, and on you know on the other side of that token, there are people who are already in tune with this idea uh, or with these ideas rather, uh, who can watch this film and really relate to it and and see perhaps where some of this language that we use today may have come from. Even um, so, I think it plays well on both levels. I concur. Uh, well, again, I think uh, I would highly recommend this for anyone who hasn't watched it yet and who is interested in this subject matter, because, again, I think it's just uh, very, very well done. All right. Uh, well, if uh, tracesofreality.com is one of those uh, pairs of glasses that people can see the world uh, through, I certainly hope people have tried them on before. But if not, please do go to Traces of Reality and uh, tell us what you're working on these days. Yeah, so uh, the traces of reality.com is the website, as you mentioned. I also do Demanufacturing Consent, uh, the weekly podcast over on Bowling Frogs Post. Um, also, I'm uh, working as, a, as an editor for the Pan Am Post. You can check out, I don't write that often anymore, but when I do, <laughs> you can either find it on my own website or over on the Pan Am Post. And uh, there's a couple of other things that are in the works, but I probably shouldn't say or I'll jinx it. So I'll wait, for, I'll wait till next time until it's actually done. And then maybe we can talk about it. We'll talk about the uh, fait accompli. Yeah. All right. Okay, awesome stuff, Guillermo. Thank you as always. And thank you for uh, getting me to rewatch this film and giving me an excuse. It's always good to, uh, to have that excuse. Indeed. No, I was grateful for the excuse myself. So thanks for that. All right, friends, there he goes, Guillermo Jimenez. I, again, hope you will check out tracesofreality.com. That is our discussion for this month, and so now it's time to dip into the mailbag to talk about reactions to our program last month. And as people who are following this podcast at home will know, we were talking, of course, about B.F. Skinner's Walden 2 in the last episode of this podcast. I did get some positive feedback about that uh, discussion, but unfortunately not a lot of very specific feedback, although there was this very interesting 
interesting email from Junior Jailbird, who wrote in uh, to say, You mentioned a Melissa Paris Harry in your audio file, and I wrote her after taking in your audio file. No compliments from me, but I was civil. I suggested she be ashamed of her authoritarian attitude and anti-family unit message to the world. Anyway, what a fantastic work you created all by yourself. Very alive indeed. Thank you so much, Junior Jailbird, for taking the time to do that. As I did say in that uh, in that uh, podcast last month, I don't think we should give Melissa Parisari too much credit or attention because, of course, what she is there to do at MSNBC is to be controversial and to say these things as a way of moving the conversational goalposts a little bit further. But, uh, but at any rate, I'm glad that people do call these shills out for the types of ridiculous statements they're making about how we have to think about how the government really owns our children, not not us. It's not it's not we don't own. Why do, why do we think of the, our children as our own? Anyway, I'll let you uh, re-listen to that Melissa Paris Harry audio if you so choose. Um, and hey, if you want to write these uh, people and let them know what we really think of them, why not? At any rate, again, that will do it for this month's edition of the Film Literature in the New World Order podcast. So for next month, let me give you your homework assignment. We are going to be discussing the 2011 Hollywood drama directed by Steven Soderbergh, starring Matt Damon, Kate Winslet, and Jude Law, Contagion. Yes, very apropos, one might say, to events that are unfolding at this moment, and who knows where we will be in that story next month, but we will be talking about Contagion next month on this podcast, so get ready, uh, get prepared, and we will uh, look forward to talking to you then. Until then, I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you, as always, for tuning in to this podcast and looking forward to talking to you again real soon.